and welcome back to 90s noise this is ashley born 1988 i'm april born 1991 we are back with another episode of 90s noise and today we have a very special guest he is writer producer creator and published author uh some of the different things that 90s people know clarissa explains it all and Baron the Big Blue House. He also wrote a follow-up book for Clarissa uh, called Things I Can't Explain. <laughs> Things I Can't Explain. Sorry, I'm blanking this morning. <laughs> it's all right. I remember. So I can tell you. It's easy. We've got Mitchell Kriegman here. Thank you so much for joining us this morning for us and afternoon for you. So yeah, we're really excited to have some of your time to be able to ask you some questions from sure. the 90s and even up to today. <laughs> yeah. Glad to be here. Thank you for uh, inviting me and for the introduction. I also worked on the, the animation. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yes. If you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about kind of what led you to pursue the path that you did in the entertainment industry. Yeah, well, the way it worked, uh, first of all, my goal in life was just to write and make things up and do stuff. There wasn't ever any I guess there was never any question. That's the only thing I, I thought I could do and wanted to do and would do. Uh, so, you know, eventually I made my way to uh, New York and uh, became a video artist, actually, which is people still do it. it. They were short little videos that nowadays would be on YouTube. And I did really weird performances. I did something called An Evening of Stories and tricks you won't see anywhere that was totally in the dark and you never saw what I did, but well, that was the idea. And uh, I did other performance and video and eventually I got noticed by Saturday Night Live and a guy named Michael O'Donohue who put me in a kind of cult video. It was supposed to be a show that was going to replace Saturday Night Live at one point called Mr. Mike's Mondo Video, uh, but it was considered too outrageous at the time. So I had a bunch of pieces in that. And so then I was faced with kind of trying to make a living because I, you know, I had gotten grants. Uh, I had done little things here and there. I had done odd jobs and stuff to get by. And uh, in New York, where I was living, there were two businesses, so to speak, that I could go into. There was the kids business, which was Nickelodeon was just starting. Sesame Street had been going on for a while. And then there was, well, there's actually three business. There was Saturday Night Live and there was uh, Broadway. And a lot of people actually went through all of those businesses. I, I was, my stuff was always, my adult work was very childlike, very kind of Andy Kaufman. I had a character named Marshall Klugman, uh, who was me. And uh, I had done this stuff that was, you know, kind of outrageous, but it was also all very childlike. And then my, my kid stuff was very adult-like. <laughs> so it was just really a toss-up which one was going to work best. You know, I think of, you know, it's sort of like you have a key and you don't know which door it's going to open. So I was willing to go through either door. <laughs> but um, I do think that the kid door both doors had their pluses and minuses, but the kid door actually at the time was way more sophisticated than the adult door because the adult door was Saturday Night Live and a bunch of, I don't know, I, I didn't have a high opinion of the kind of comedy that was being done besides people like Andy Kaufman and stuff and O'Donohue. And the kid stuff, 
was an open field. I mean, it was just a wide open area, like it's ne it's never was before, except for maybe in the 50s, when people were doing weird little local TV shows. This is too long an answer, but I'll finish it in a second here. You're but good. um <laughs> okay. So the kids' area was like, you know, talking to the camera was something you could do in adult TV. They didn't they they wouldn't let you do something. It was too weird. And, you know, and something like you look at something like Ren and Stimpy versus Saturday Night Live, which one is more outrageous and sophisticated? It's Ren and Stimpy, you know. So I ended up more and more working in kids. And that's where my success was anyway. So those are my, it was some way it was, the choice was made for me to some degree. And I've always done other adult stuff and kids stuff. And I'm always doing a mixture and a novels and I'm writing a musical right now. And so I, I just want to do things that, I can see get done that people can respond to, you know? Absolutely. That's amazing. <laughs> like, I, I love hearing that. And it's, you've, you've been a big part of our childhood for sure. Oh, thank what you. you have, what you have created. And let's say a good part of your childhood. Oh, an amazing <laughs> part. Like I would love coming home and rushing to the TV to watch like Clarissa or bear was one that was while it, it was being shown more while I was at school. So when I was sick right. and everything, I would be able to watch it. And I enjoyed it. Even okay. being a little older, it still was yeah. enjoyable. Well, they were all, like I said, they were, my uh, kid stuff was very, had a lot of adult in it. And that's yeah. what I think made it really good, honestly. That was the best part about it, I think. Yeah. yeah. With Clarissa Explains All, obviously, like we said, it's been a huge part of our lives growing up. So where the idea behind it start and what was the process like from that first idea to the first episode being made? Well, that's interesting. Uh, let me just sort of give it a thought for a second, because basically, I it happened pretty quickly in a way. I, I had a deal. This is the showbiz side of it. I had Nickelodeon had never done a sitcom before when my deal started. And I had a deal with a writer who was more senior than me, who I was really following along with him. And, and it was to do a sitcom for uh, Nickelodeon. They didn't really know me that well. And then he bailed. He like went to Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, which I had no desire to do. So I kind of got inherited the deal without any idea because our idea together was so dumb. It was kind of like parent trap in outer space. It was just one of those horrible, dumb ideas that Nick used to do at that time. So when I inherited the deal, I just sort of took it very seriously because it was an opportunity. Now I had never written a sitcom. I didn't even really know how, and I didn't know what a sitcom, I didn't like sitcoms. They were really boring to me because nothing ever happened in sitcoms. You know, it was the same five people and they had the same problems and they had the same arguments. It was a lot like living with my parents. I didn't <laughs> want to do that. <laughs> so I started studying it in a way, I was able to connect with Jerry Laburn, who's the woman that, you know, she didn't really know me before my deal. And I got her to give me, and she was extremely generous to give me all the research about Nickelodeon and, and like who's watching and all that kind of stuff. And my idea was originally, and this is sort of how I work. I work a lot of times, not from a specific, but from a big kind of mission. 
And then I figure out how to best do it. And then I assume that by the time I do it, it's going to be meaningful to me and other people. And hopefully it works out. And it has usually. So I first thought, well, who's the audience? Can I do a show that the audience identifies with? You know, kind of like trying to do Seinfeld, you know, based on what the audience that's going to watch it is, right? And and so that means I don't have to be the audience. Obviously, I am in some way, but I'm not, right? So, and I knew that Nickelodeon just didn't have any people there at that time. It was game shows. There, there were no characters. There were no there was no personality there, you know? And what I saw, you know, is that, especially with Nickelodeon's mission of being kid first, kid power, you know, kids being, getting kids, the way I saw it is that it was about giving kids something authentic to kids, as opposed to here's this toy you should play with, you know, or here's a show that we adults want you to watch. I sort of took what would a kid want to watch? What would be totally for a kid? And what would be, even though kids can't do everything, they can do a bunch of stuff. Why can't I give them something that is authentically everything they can do as opposed to a limited adult show for kids, you know what I mean? Or something like that. So that's a very different orientation. It still is a different orientation, by the way. They don't, most people don't operate this way, right? because it was really from inside a kid. And I guess I'm, you know, I'm sure under hypnosis, I would go back to eight. I mean, I think I'm an eight year old at heart. Maybe I get up to 12 or 13, but that's, my brain is really pretty much stifled eight to 12, I think is where I am. So I always say, what would my eight year old self do? What would he, how would he feel about this? So uh, I'm going to give you another long answer. I'm sorry. You can interrupt me by the way, anytime you want. No, no. Okay. We we love these we love these answers going especially going into depth because it's not something that we can get anywhere else except from talking directly to you. But feel free if you want to interrupt. <laughs> yeah, so so that was the orientation I had. I looked at their research. I was trying to figure out how do I reach whoever that kid is that's watching. And then the next decision I made and this had a plus and minus to it was to make it a girl. And first of all, the reason why I didn't do a boy is because I don't think they would have let me do a boy the way I wanted to do a boy. And I think they still would not let me do a boy. I've tried many, many times to do a boy as sophisticated and cool as Clarissa. You can't do it. I mean, there are little pieces of it here and there, but a boy who is, you know, smart and has interesting taste and has ideas about things and isn't just a jock or 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 a nerd or whatever the stereotypes are they still don't really allow that you know and I tried I had a pilot at one point but nothing has ever I've never been able to do it so I decided to do a girl also because at that moment in the world girls were ascending or they were about to you know what I mean they were it was you could have a girl be aggressive whereas you couldn't have a boy be a aggressive in the same way you know you you, you get it the whole gender mm -hmm. thing absolutely was a, there was a little door opening and I decided that's where I'm going to go and I had this theory I had a lot of theories you know whether they're true or not but they worked a theory that oh the big problem with a girl when I presented the idea of a girl was they said that boys won't watch a girl and by the way now when I present a boy they say girls won't watch a boy I'm telling you, it is such a blindness uh, 
and it's so dumb and it makes no sense. And they think they're so smart and they're not. So the big problem was girls won't watch a boy because at that time they never had a girl. They thought boys will feel icky watching a girl. It won't happen. It won't work. And I set out to totally nail that idea, like a stake in the ground. And I did that. First of all, my theory was that there's no time in your life where you're more willing to identify with the other sex than when you're like eight to 12. You know what I mean? You don't, a girl can be just as tough or a boy can be just as tough or they can all be, you know, you, you, it's not a bit, they're kids. Kid first is the idea. And so I, I decided I just had to make sure my theory was if I didn't piss off the boys, or do something that was too girly, then the boys would say, oh, hi, there's that girl. She's cool. I'll talk to her, you know, I'll watch her. So a good example of this, if you remember the opening of um, the original Clarissa, it had these jump shots of her in a costume and a monster. Yes. And bouncing the basketball. Well, she couldn't bounce. She bounced the basketball like a girl and not like a girl that played basketball, right? And so I knew if I showed her going when she was bouncing, that would not, that would be it because that's what it was going to take. Right. And so I jump cut it so that, you know, she looked like she knew what she was doing. Right. Uh, The other thing is I didn't do anything that was overtly girly in the sense that it wasn't putting on makeup. It wasn't, I think now you could, now you can do it. uh, And boys would also still watch it. But at that point, the dichotomy it was a i like to say it was a gi joe barbie world you know mm-hmm. it was <laughs> yeah it was in you were in one or the other right yeah so for all those things that's where i was headed and then finally it was like who is this girl you know and i knew some cool girls you know i knew cool cool girls in high school a lot of times they were kind of considered loose girls because they were cool and more open, but I, you know, didn't have to go that part of it. You know what I mean? And then yeah. my wife, uh, at the time, uh, worked at 17 magazine. Okay. And it was actually not that hard for me to research it because there was a, a sassy magazine came out and there were, it was all, it, were, it wasn't internet, but it was magazines. You could just buy 10 magazines and you could learn pretty much most current stuff, you know? And the girl emerged from people that were cool that worked with my ex-wife at the time in fashion. And, and then I had this also this other idea of that she would wear whatever she felt like wearing and that it wouldn't be coordinated and all that kind of stuff. And then eventually there was a one of the most wonderful people I worked with was this Lisa Letterer was the costume designer for Clarissa. And she took that whole idea and made it her own and made it amazing. And Lisa was kind of the muse of the show as well. She really knew how to, she caught that kind of girl I was trying to do in the clothing. And if I talked to her and she was somewhat famous at the time because she had a nose ring, which nobody had, Nickelodeon was freaked out that, he hired a woman with a nose ring to work on the show. And, uh, but she was just a hundred percent, you know, brilliant. And uh, yeah. And then I just went about putting the pieces together for this girl. And I guess the final thing is really the idea. And I was influenced by something that Craig Bartlett did. I think Craig did it. Uh, He did something called Penny and it was a stop motion sort of tabletop 
claymation animation where this girl just went yammering. She was just yammering. And I don't know. I went to this and I did this and blah, 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 blah. But it was this little animation. It lasted 30 seconds. I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. She's yammering, you know, directly us. And there was also, I guess, Harriet the Spy was kind of a cool girl for two seconds, you know, back then. And there were some older examples, you know, people like Diane Keaton. There were some other, you know, in the in the adult world that I was adapting. So bottom line is I decided she had to talk to us. And I had worked, this is so long, but I'm telling you, I'm almost done. I had worked at, before that, I had worked at something called the Comedy Channel, which was before, is it called the Comedy Network? No, it's called the Comedy, what's it called now? Comedy Central. Comedy Central. Central. Yeah, it was called the Comedy Channel then. And uh, I had produced a whole bunch of shows and I produced two shows there. One was with Rachel Sweet, who ended up writing the song for Clarissa. You know, nah, 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 nah. And in her show, she was this smart, tough little girl. And she would, we, we came up with the idea of doing lots of lists and charts and stuff. So I took that whole idea and then I did another show called Higgins, Boys, and Gruber. And the guys in that went on to do that, be the head of Saturday Night Live and be on TV and all these things. And we had done this crazy show where we jump cut little segments and weird things would happen between segments. So the story wasn't like a regular classic sitcom story. It was like things happened, you know, like you'd cut back and there was somebody tied up trying to get out, you know, or or somebody had just some disaster had happened. So things really happened and they were funny. And and they also talked to camera. Both these two people uh, shows, they talked to camera because they were the host, right? They, 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 it was natural for them to talk to the camera. They weren't what up until then was called breaking the fourth wall, right? Like we're not breaking the fourth wall talking to each other, right? We're just talking to each other, yeah. right? So that became, this is every answer, this is probably the answer to every question that you're going to ask all in one answer. Anyway, that became talking to camera, you know, because it was like being the host of your life and talking to camera. I'm going to stop because always I'll keep going in some little aspect or another. But yeah, so that's, that's where it all came from. And then Melissa, you know, made it her own too. So that's why it worked, in my opinion. So once the show kind of got going how much creative input did you have moving forward throughout the series I had all the I was the only creative oh. input I I know and it's funny you nice. ask that question because these days everybody's so screwed and everybody loses control of everything they do I was famously in control to the point where they hated me <laughs> And uh, and by they, I mean, they didn't really hate me, but I was the author of my show. I mean, I controlled every aspect. I wasn't the only one doing everything. I mean, like I say, Lisa, you know, designed her clothes, the clothes, and there were people giving me input all over the place, Melissa being to somebody too, and, and I had writers and everything. But I wrote a Bible that was kind of famous at the time for the show that had the way they talked. I envisioned the whole thing. It, it was like my video art in a lot of ways. I just, you know, it was like me creating another kind of idea that way, you know, like an artist. That's so yeah, I, I, in fact, I, I'll give you an example because I wanted to push the envelope and many times it was more than the network. Although I have to say that Jerry really, Laybourne 
she's pretty famously the woman that started Nickelodeon. And she really, you know, came to the, eventually came to the rescue over and over again. But, but basically, and by the way, she's the person that bought Bear in the Big Blue House too. So she's like really responsible for my career. So the bully episode, you know, when she was going to fight the bully, mm -hmm. they didn't want to do that episode. They said a girl would never fight a boy. That's where everybody mm -hmm. lived in those days. You know, that a girl would never fight a boy, right? You know, I said, well, that's just not true. Especially if the boy's picking on her brother or somebody and she's maybe a little bit older or whatever. It just doesn't matter. A girl mm -hmm. is going to stand up for what she stands up for. And they literally, I only had one writer in those days. And that writer became pretty famous, Alexa Young. And she went on to Friends and a whole bunch of other shows has a, a, a fantastic career. And the poor woman, her first job was working with me, which was, I think, pretty close to a nervous breakdown sometimes. Anyway, so they put her in, they put her in the spot between me and the network where they asked her to convince me not to do that episode. And if you recall the episode, you know, in the end, she doesn't fight him. I was totally sensitive to all the issues, you know what I mean? And she goes through all the steps and everything. And a guy you know, confesses his love for her at the end. And we, you know, you get out of it. You don't have to have the fight, but she was willing to, right? So eventually it became a very, a sign of pride at Nickelodeon about that episode because it was ahead of its time. Definitely was. And so I do know, I I was watching the documentary, The Orange Years. And oh, yeah. Melissa had mentioned that in her first, like one of her interviews with you, she, you had asked her about new kids on the block and she was like, oh no, I don't care for them at all. And she preferred they might be giants, which you included in her character. Were there any other specific bits of Melissa's personality at the time that you saw and you were like, oh, that's gotta be, that we've got to incorporate that for Clarissa? Yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is, so I had worked at Saturday Night Live where our job on the limited time I was there was to write a monologue for the host, right? And what you do is you'd really try to come up with what worked for that host, right? And I think it's true for anybody that creates a sitcom, eventually the main character, you want them to be the character and you want to adapt as much as you can. And so anytime you saw anything that she did naturally that you wanted, you would unconsciously or consciously put in the character. I mean, the cadence would become her cadence. You know, I mean, there's a lot of me in it too. And, the, and when you read the book, you see, if you read the novel, it's definitely the same voice, but uh, which was surprising to me because I didn't know how I would write that novel. But so she used to say a, a Bill Cosby, who's canceled now, but Bill Cosby line, OBKB, I think came from Cosby. I had no idea at the time. I thought she made it up and I thought, okay, we'll use that. And, you know, whenever she expressed an interest or an idea or, or even an aversion to something, and, you know, when we did that episode, Jade, with the first kiss, that now they say terrible things about each other. Now, I don't understand why. Couldn't you just say something nice? Oh, yeah, he was nice to kiss. I mean, I don't know. I don't get it. But, you know, she was from Long Island. And when she started, like, really Long Island, Long Island. She had a, a bit of a Long Island accent. And so I did that episode Jade because I wanted to see her play somebody from Long Island with an accent and see how that went and everything. So there were just, you know, anytime it could fit her 
or she did something, but there wasn't any, she was pretty young, you know, I mean, 12 now, maybe older or 13, maybe an older, more mature kid now, but she was still pretty young. And, you know, some of her monologues, which is always fascinating me, she didn't really understand some of the quotes in the monologues. Like the funniest moment was, and this is not a criticism because she did, if you look, she was in every scene of every show, right? Just enormous amount of dialogue. But she, we did this one monologue where she said something about the Dalai Lama in Tibet. Oh. And she kept on saying, Tibet, Tibet. And, and I just didn't know why she was saying that. I didn't understand it until I realized, oh, she doesn't know what Tibet is, you know? Yeah, no, so yeah, we tried to incorporate as much of her, any preference she had, we tried to incorporate. That's awesome. I love that. Were there any moments from Clarissa that have really stuck with you, like any specific episodes or just anything behind the scenes that has kind of carried on with you? Well, I mean, all of it as a whole, the first, you know, the first season of episodes, I maybe I didn't write the first draft of every script. But eventually I ended up writing everything because that's what the old way, I, I don't know if it's the old way, but the way that a, a writer works is they want it to have a certain tone and work as you, everything has to go through your typewriter, so to speak. So I was really finding the character then and and doing it. You know, I mean, I wrote the novel because there were so many things that stuck with me and I wanted to explore the characters more. So I think sort of like everything I mean, I was definitely more focused. I wasn't as focused on every single episode as I was in the first season, but the beginning of each season and certain special episodes, I either wrote or was deeply involved with. So, you know, I just, what I, I've been surprised that when you watch it now, it still sounds very contemporary. Don't you, what do you think? What do you guys think? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Uh Absolutely. I think it holds up very well. It's it's one of those few shows that going back and watching it could be on now, mm -hmm. like brand new and be, I mean, heck, if we introduce it to this new generation, <laughs> they'd be like, oh my gosh, what is this? This is great. This, especially with the clothes, all the clothes coming back and everything, they yeah, probably yeah. wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we did a funny, when I did the, when I did a little book tour, we thought we had a brilliant idea doing a dress like Clarissa contest. And I was super disappointed in it because when they came dressed like Clarissa, they basically were dressing the way they normally dress because that's what everybody does. Yeah. So it wasn't, and there's so many things in it. There's so many things about the show that are normal now to the point where I've even been told by executives because I, I you know, created new shows and done new stuff and stuff. And they'll say, you know, you can't just get away with a girl who talks to the camera and acts like herself and, you know, is contemporary. You know, you can't do that because, you know, maybe you could get away with that before, you know, but if she doesn't have dragons in the bedroom or something, then, you know, there's no point. It's just very, yeah, it's become, you know, YouTube, talking to the camera and like, take your phone, for instance, we all talk to our phone and then talk to people around us, just like Clarissa would talk to you and then talk to her mom. So kind of touching on the book a little bit here. Okay. So I'm I'm almost I'm almost done with it. I've been oh. uh, listening to it because for me like oh. reading time wise just doesn't I don't I'm not able to do that as much unfortunately. But 
there was a part in the book that I I really want to ask you about. You're probably sure. not even going to expect this, but so when talking about Clarissa's cat, Elvis in the book, and she's right. discussing what she was thinking of naming him. And she was thinking about naming it um, something kind of witchy because it just appeared right. on the sixth right. floor balcony. Right. And it was something, it was a female name and then Sabrina. And then once she found out it was a male, it was something or Salem. Was that a nod to Melissa? In her oh, totally. Thoughts? Okay. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. I wanted to encompass, I, I believe in encompassing the world in my fictional universe, in my fantasy world, I like to incorporate as much of the real world as possible and pretend like it exists. <laughs> I, when I but, heard that I was, I, I was, I was like, I think he's doing a nod to her, her next. Well, you so. know, I did so many things in that book. I, my two novels, uh, one, I did one called Being Audrey Hepburn, which has this huge, I call it an archaeology of Audrey Hepburn in it of like, incredible information about her. Some of the characters say lines that Audrey Hepburn said. And and I may be full of, you know, my own kind of crazy world stuff, but I don't think people realize how dense it is in terms of the things that I'm putting into it. And Clarissa, the Clarissa, I believe you want that in a book. And for me, I want to know that if I keep digging and digging, digging in the book, I'll find something more. But because the prose is very, I'm a very commercial kind of easy, snappy writer. Sometimes people don't think it's as serious as it is, but I take it very seriously. And the Clarissa novel just has a ton of stuff. And I went through trying to answer every question ever asked about Clarissa and making a play on it or adding more information to it or doing something or having fun with it. So yeah, I, I totally, it's just like I said before about Clarissa, Melissa adding to the character, anything that's in the world of it, I want to add, you know? I love that knot. I, I really did. <laughs> no, that's good. I'm, I appreciate that. How is it, the process different when you're writing for a show versus going into writing a novel? Like, what is that like? It's extraordinarily different. It's really, and I wasn't good at it, especially in the beginning. I just felt like I could eventually get it. First of all, the biggest, the simplest answer to that is really when you're doing a movie, it's a journey of visuals. When you're doing a sitcom, it's really a journey of dialogue. And when you're doing a novel, it's a journey of words. Mm. So, you know, movies really move by the image. Sitcoms are really about the dialogue between the characters. But then in a book, you don't have the images, really, and you have some dialogue. So it's a journey of words. So adapting to being able to evoke and describe stuff was very difficult. And eventually I got the hang of it, and I loved it. And people say it's the novels are cinematic, and I'm writing an adaptation of the Audrey book now for film. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, I have a new idea. Can I try my idea on you? <laughs> Yeah, sure. go for it. Absolutely. So, you probably don't know the the Audrey novel. And by the way, you know who's narrating? Who's uh, the voice on the uh, things I can't explain audiobook? Not by name, but she sounds a lot like Melissa. I know it's not Melissa, but she does sound a lot like her. It's her sister. Wow. Yeah, it's her <laughs> sister. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I requested her. That explains it. Because I, I told Ashley, I was 
even sounds like Melissa. And I just, when that beginning part, when it says read by, I sometimes tune out, honestly. Yeah, of course, of course. Why, why, yeah. So anyway, I have this idea. So the audio, So if you haven't read the audio book, I can give you a quick synopsis. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it's called Being Audrey Hepburn. It's about a girl about 19 who lives in Jersey and has a really terrible kind of crummy life at home and is going nowhere, doesn't want to go to college, just graduated high school. And through a friend of hers who works at the Met. Oh, and she he she gets through her life by watching Audrey Hepburn movies. So she's a like stalker level Audrey Hepburn kind of fanatic. Anyway, so through the circumstances of the opening of the book, she gets to try on the dress from Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh. And it fits perfectly. And the zipper goes up and it's perfect. And then she starts talking like Audrey because she's watched every Audrey movie. And her friend from Jersey who works at the Met starts doing up her hair. And soon enough, she's like kind of like Audrey, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, her boss shows up and they try to take the dress off and it's stuck. The zipper is stuck. And it's a very form-fitting dress. And, and so her friend shoves her out into the gala of the Met, you know, these gala shows where every rich kid is there and every star and, you know, the crazy Met gala. So, uh, and then she passes as somebody, even though she's just a kid from Jersey, as somebody like, they don't know it's Audrey's dress because nobody knows Audrey's dress. And uh, I mean, anymore. And so anyway, that's the story. And then she gets into intrigue and she kind of trades her identity and she pretends she becomes who she is by pretending to be somebody else. That's the idea. And I had originally wanted to do a movie for Melissa based on the same idea, but it never came to fruition. It never happened. So uh, my new idea, well, it's the same idea, but I want to do it like a French film. I kind of want to do it like a Godard or Truffaut film and make it really feel like that kind of quality of uh, romance and interest. So we'll see what happens, but that's the idea <laughs> I had today. We'll see what I have a new idea every couple of days. So till it's done. So I've gotten completely off track. <laughs> so then um, with the writing for shows, do you have a very specific episode that is like your all time top favorite? In Clarissa. Yes. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I think I have like three favorites. I think no TV holds up perfectly. It's the most, even though people don't watch TV anymore, it's just the most dead on kind of uh, episode. It has the best fantasies and I think she's great in it. Everybody's great. They seem the most natural in it. But I also like Cool Dad a lot where the dad you know, tries to be cool. I like all those moments. And then there's one more. Let's see, what is the other one? There's a third one that I love a lot. But anyway, those are two really great ones that I love. Do you have any more questions, April, about Clarissa, or do we want to move on? Okay, we've. Uh, I, I do think we've touched on the majority of my Clarissa questions. Please forgive me. I might have like a wrap up Clarissa question. <laughs> oh wait. Oh, I actually, I I don't think it it's going through. But the Clarissa reboot that was supposed to happen. Do you have any details about? why it's not happening or kind of where that idea of it being in a reboot where that came from 
allow me to be, have a very try to have a very mysterious answer. <laughs> Basically, it's true and untrue, and it's true that there was several. I've written several, and I loved them, and those aren't happening. But it's not true that it's not happening. Okay. <laughs> so that's about as far as I can go. That it it just it's still. And I, I actually have a lot of confidence in a positive outcome. So there. Awesome. <laughs> we'll be watching for that. <laughs> okay. I mean, it was a really, it was a really other earlier versions that didn't happen. I, I'll just say there were some really great stuff in those. And I think they would have been great too, but they didn't happen. And And it is true to some degree that a lot of it's about how the world's changed with streamers and, and executives and you know who's there and who's not there and and what's going on but i think in the end it's going to be really good so there you go you heard it here first <laughs> yes <laughs> all right so we're going to kind of transition into some of your other work um that cool. we've grown up with can you explain the process of story editing with some of the animated shows that you've worked on, sure. such as like Doug, Rugrats, Ren and Stippy, Rocco's Modern Life? Yeah, that was very different because I didn't create those shows. And I came in when they were first being discussed and, and whether we were going to develop them or not, because I had kind of a parallel job at Nickelodeon, which I was really thrilled about, which was working on the animation and they had done a lot of, for the time, pretty daring, created a couple, some really daring possibilities. You know, the idea of Ren and Stimpy, uh, the idea of Rugrats and uh, Doug and Rocco, eventually. Those are the ones that I worked on. I worked on a bunch of pilots that didn't happen. They were also exciting. And just as a weird footnote, and maybe somebody that worked there can tell me I'm wrong because I remember, I swear this is true, that we saw a South Park pilot. And it may not have been called South Park, but it was definitely that kind of animation and it sounded like those characters. Now, maybe mm -hmm. that was just a dream I had. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like we saw that and they turned it down, which is thank God for everybody because it is best where it's been and they're brilliant and that's a brilliant show. Uh, but we may have seen that. We saw other animation possibilities that didn't happen. And some of them I thought would have been good, but whatever. Uh, so from the very beginning, I came in and, and was uh, working with the executives to, you know, give my input about it. And I had worked at Sesame a little bit because I wrote the movie and Elmo and Grouchland. And so I had a good idea about this kind of writing that I thought they really needed at Nickelodeon, which is back to that adult like kid stuff, you know, kid with an adult level. Uh, they call it at Sesame Street dual premise writing. And the idea is that you have, that it works for kids, but it also works for adults. Or the way they put it at Nickelodeon is, it, it, and this was Jerry's idea again, that you should create something that you really want to see that you think kids would like. So that naturally meant that you as an adult would like it as much as the kids in a way, right? Which meant that it was going to have another edge to it. So the process was just giving my input in the beginning uh, and suggesting and seeing storylines. And in the um, in in the case of Ren and Stimpy, it was that he had like 16 or 20 characters. And and there were some, I had a little more experience 
uh, in not a lot more, but a little more experience than a lot of people there. So I knew you could only have three to five characters. And I knew some ways that need to be structured. I knew how to churn out scripts. I knew, you know, how to go from outline to these other things. I wasn't an animator. So sometimes my input was met with a lot of resistance, uh, mainly, I mean, a couple of places. One is uh, John Chris Lucy, who's a bit, you know, different to say the least. Although I think he's a genius. Unfortunately, his behavior is a little bit out there, but he wanted to get rid of writers from animation. And that made, a, it actually makes a lot of sense because animation wasn't done by writers in Bugs Bunny's time. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Early animation, they were artists that did storyboards of scenes that happened and it was all visual and the humor came from the visual. And I had written some of these like kind of not such great animation series. And the one I worked on wasn't bad, but I think it was called Alf Tales, but it, they were like very written. They were writers wrote them. There were no artists involved and it was wrong. And he was right. Chris Lucy was right. It needed to get back to the artists. So he was very resistant to stuff, but I was just trying to do things like create a structure for the series, you know, so that we could do short, films and it was very hard for him to deliver and he couldn't deliver full episodes and and I and look he would also deliver like a storyboard this thick which needs to be about this big you know I mean and it had a lot of pretty weird stuff in it uh, in those days that were not appropriate you know at all by any stretch so so I was a little bit of the person that had to be the bearer of bad news and try to do that and he really hated me for it <laughs> And then, you know, with Rugrats, they were a very sophisticated team. They knew a lot. And my big thing was that they sometimes veered off into being too adult, more like Simpsons. And they kind of hated me for that, too. But, uh, you know, I did my job. And uh, Doug was, you know, also great. Jim Jenkins, I actually come from the same hometown as Jim Jenkins, so I could recognize some of the stuff he did. And I was just trying to always keep Doug having a little bit more of an edge. And uh, but sometimes it just felt a little too much like peanuts, you know, to me. But it was all his. They were all, they all created it. It wasn't created by me. And then I also got stuck in between Nickelodeon and these creative teams where I kind of got played a little bit as the bad guy, which I guess I didn't know enough to get out of but I eventually like had a heart to heart with everybody to tell them that I'm sorry if I came across as too tough because there's been podcasts on Rugrats especially where they really didn't like me very much but you know I did my job and I liked them and I learned things from I'll say this because I've said this many times actually in other ways that there was a scene in Rugrats where it was the point of view from inside the mouth of Phil and Lil like as mm. if the cameras were inside their mouth as they were talking to everybody. And it was a really wacky shot. Mm -hmm. I was too much the writer. And I said, oh, there's no point of view from inside their mouth. You can't do that. No, you shouldn't do that, right? And they did it anyway, thank God. And it was really cool. It was super cool. I didn't realize you could do that. And I actually did a little kind of tribute to it in Bear at one point where I had a shot in, uh, I think it's a toothbrushing song, where it's from inside the mouth, as it's your teeth, a giant mouth with the 
mm. toothbrush. <laughs> and so I learned a lot too. And, you know, I did my best. You know, I, I wasn't, I'll just say this about me as a person. I, I didn't have the smoothest manner in those days. I was doing Clarissa and I was doing all the animation and I was newly married and had a couple of kids and I was really just barreling through sometimes. And so I think I, you know, wasn't as graceful as I'd like to be. What was your favorite cartoon that you worked on out of those four? Do you have a favorite if I can ask? Well, <laughs> it, definitely Ren and Stimpy is jaw-dropping and, and it reset the clock on animation. You know, it was just so, uh, I mean, I like all of them in one way or another. I mean, I like that Rugrats was point of view. It was kind of the ultimate point of view idea. And that's what the, extra, you know, I always felt there was an extravagance in animation. It needs to have a kind of extravagant visual component, you know, and I've gone on to do other development in animation and, and I've, I've been working on something that was supposed to happen before the pandemic didn't happen, may not happen. That had a really great, that was as great to me as working on Ren and Stimpy, where it just did things I'd never expected. So that's my favorite thing, you know, I, and there's no doubt Ren and Stimpy historically really changed animation. You know, mm -hmm. I thought the cure for John would be if he directed live action because I think if you trans just like Tim Burton you know what I mean if you translate John Chris Felucci's vision into live action it might have been mind-blowing you know that would have been cool to see yeah yeah I would have loved that it would have been awesome to say with animation can you tell us a little bit about the shadowmation that you created and how that kind of came to fruition and usage in the, some of those shows that you worked on? Yeah, that's in Book of Pooh, and it's a big, big world. So there's this thing that nobody probably knows or remembers called uh, Topo Gigio. Have you ever heard of Topo Gigio? No one has ever heard of it. I, it it was, sounds familiar. It's before your time. It still exists. It was an Italian puppet that used to be on a variety show, the Ed Sullivan Show, and this puppet would come out like in a little stage that was all black and the puppeteers were wearing black gloves and they'd move the puppet in and it was a, uh, so everything was black behind him. So he looked like he was alive. And I loved that sense of the puppet being on his own and alive, you know? So at one point I got asked and I had done shadow in bear, the shadow girl, and um, at one point, I got asked by Disney to compete with five other uh, creators to create a new version of Winnie the Pooh. And I just thought, wouldn't it be great if Winnie the Pooh could just come to life and walk in and do stuff? And we could go to the 100 Acre Woods and it, we could be there. And it was like not like a hand puppet. You know, it was a physical, he had physicality and stuff. So at that time, you know, the news used a lot of blue screen background, but there wasn't a common way to do this. So I ended up developing basically virtual sets, which are more attuned to uh, video games. You know, video games take place in virtual sets. And basically we used a video game engine and we learned we could animate in the engine. It's all the things Unreal 5 does, unbelievable versions of this stuff. And, and in fact, now a lot of the principles of what I did are in, have you ever heard of the volume? So in TV right now, there's a, you know, the show Mandalorian, right? Mm -hmm. The Mandalorian 
So we did, I mean, I could send you and you could use it if you want, uh, like behind the scenes of what we did. We created this whole, we created a whole blue screen world, but then we used the camera in real time and married it all together. So you could see the puppet and see the environment all in real time. And we could output it as if you were living in a fictitious, imaginary world, you know. And it was using a video game engine and we realized we could animate within it and there were a lot of things we could do. And so the puppets were this 300 year old form of puppetry called Bunraku, which you see in Lion King and now Life of Pi on Broadway, they're doing Bunraku. And on theater, in theater, you can see the people and it's not a big deal because your imagination totally goes with the puppet. But in TV, if you saw the people, you wouldn't be able to stop looking at the people. So we put everybody in blue and we created this blue world that then we completely married to this animated world that we created. So in Pooh, it's the Hundred Acre Woods. And in Big, Big World, it's this jungle world that we created. And then we discovered tons of ways we could animate within that. And I did this amazing demo for a feature film that never got made called Sizzling Kung Fu Mice. That was <laughs> one of my favorite things I ever did. And where these three mice, it's, it's these three mice that live in a Chinese restaurant. And they have a Kung Fu master and uh, they fight with chopsticks and they hurl after dinner mints at each other. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I would have watched that. Yeah, totally yeah. Watched you would that. have. <laughs> I, I can totally send you a link to look at all this stuff. Oh. And no, oh. I, without, and you can even post it. It'd be fine with me if it works for you guys. And we did it with for Sony. And I wrote a whole screenplay. And we did this demo to prove that it would work. And it was very, it was done in 2005. But it looks like it was done in CGI yesterday. I mean, it's really highly, it's beautiful. And so that whole technique between the three places, those three shows became, you know, I call it soft reality now or, or shadowmation. Now you don't need to do it the way I was doing it. You know, now you can do like the Mandalorian with this big volume. Like we're talking about a new version of a show where there's some, I'm always interested in new techniques and, and ways you can make things come to life. The reason why I'm interested in new techniques is because you want to see, you want to be, if you're searching on Netflix or on the web or on TV, wherever it is, you go click, 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 and you go, oh, wow, what's that? You know what I mean? It looks different. And so that's always been my goal is to create a different look. Very interesting. Yeah, we would love to see that. That would be amazing. I'll send you links to everything you can. Oh, you want to post it, just let me know. We'll figure it out. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Like I said, like Ashley is pointing out, I, I'm a big like kung fu martial arts person. Oh, really? I, I grew up. I I grew up with two older brothers, and uh -huh. so I kind of was more on the boy side of things, like yeah. watching and everything. But both of my brothers did enjoy Clarissa. Like, yeah, they're how I got started with Clarissa, and so anything that has um anything to do with like any martial arts kung fu i'm yeah, always yeah. like oh let me let me like let me check those out so well you know in the beginning more boys watch clarissa than girls oh wow and it was but it was 50 50 pretty quick yeah and then what's fun about kung fu especially with these puppets is that they 
we use different frame rates for the fights and there was all this stuff. But so I'd love to see what you guys think about it. I'll send you a link or something. Absolutely. Yes. So I do want to ask because Clarissa was such a big Nickelodeon show and you worked on a lot of Nickelodeon um, of the cartoon and stuff. And then going into Bear in the Big Blue House, which was a Disney show. How does that work? Because I know Disney and Nickelodeon are always like butting heads. So how did that become to be there at Disney? Well, when you say they were butting heads, that was a long time ago. You know, they kind of now are homogenized, I think. But in the beginning, and again, I, I want to mention Jerry Laborn, because this woman was really responsible, you know, for a lot of opportunities, obviously for me and other people. But she was the vision of Nickelodeon as being on the side of the kid and being in the kid corner and not selling to kids and not, you know, telling them and not being above them. And so she kind of defined Nickelodeon as the anti-Disney in the beginning, which is a brilliant move. You can always actually do really well by finding that thing in the market you want to work against. So like, if you look at Saturday Night Live, uh, Lauren Michaels famously called the, the performers the not-for-ready primetime players. And he called them that because he wanted to draw a distinction between them and prime time because prime time is going to be boring. Mary Tyler Moore, the same thing. And Saturday Live was going to be edgy and different, right? So it was an anti-idea. So for a long time, Nickelodeon did really well as the anti-Disney. And I think Nickelodeon did less well when they started emulating Disney. And part of that was also because a lot of the people from Nickelodeon went to Disney because Jerry went from Nickelodeon to Disney and a bunch of the programming people went from Nickelodeon to Disney. And I was supposed to do be the head of TV animation at Disney for two seconds. And I negotiated a deal to do that. But fortunately I blew that because it would have been a nightmare for me. And they had, they, it, there was this moment, I'll just tell you this sort of inside stuff, which is that I had contract all negotiated. You know, we were looking for places. To, we lived on the East Coast. We were going to move to the West Coast. And I had a big meeting where they were smoking cigars and I don't smoke cigars. And at the Team Disney meeting, and it was, you know, the head of this and the head of that, big guys, Mike Ovitz, the famous agent. And uh, it was kind of the, man-to-man -man meeting about what we were going to do you know and I don't really like that very much and he said uh, Ovid said so why do you think you can run tv animation at at Disney and I actually never wanted to run anything like that because I, I always thought I don't want to work for the devil but if I could be the devil that might be okay maybe I'd have fun you know so I said to him listen it's not uh, the question isn't, why do I think I can do it? I said, the question is, why are you crazy enough to hire me to do it? <laughs> he didn't like this. He said, well, what do you mean? You think you're too sophisticated for this? And I said, no. And it was really an honest, legitimate thing I did. And I'm really glad I did it. Even though it made the deal go away, it was okay. Because I also knew I could probably work out something with Hanson to do what ended up being bare. Um, so I wasn't completely foolish, but I said, no, because I, I'll always do something different. I can do a version of, you know, Darkwing Duck 
that'll be new and interesting and it'll be commercially successful, but it won't be the same thing. It won't be that, you know, Darkwing Duck you've done, right? Just like my version of Winnie the Pooh did some different things and, and, but still true and quintessential to what it was doing, you know? And so, but I'm always going to do something different and you should know that, you know, if you're going to hire me. So if you think you're getting a soldier who's going to come in here and do, you know, the job and smoke cigars, that's not me. So, so my deal went away pretty quickly after that. <laughs> and I don't regret it, obviously. So Disney, so back to your point, there was that com competition, but when a lot of Nickelodeon people went to Disney and when Disney was becoming more successful, Nickelodeon dropped the ball in some ways too. They didn't, I mean, as for me, they could have kept Clarissa going. They could have aged her up. They were so obsessed with this MTV. The problem wasn't Disney. The problem was really MTV Nickelodeon. They were so mm -hmm. afraid of crossing the line into MTV. Meanwhile, you know, Ren and Stimpy was MTV as much as it was Nick. So, and Melissa was growing up and they were holding us back. And the show never failed in the ratings. It never stopped being successful. And they just arbitrarily cut it. You know, they said, oh, she's too old. She's too old for the network. And that's silly. You know, you could have had a franchise that would have gone on forever. So now kind of, we're going to kind of transition a little bit here. Okay. Um, okay. Why I am very flattered that you're doing such a thorough job on my career. I am completely <laughs> happy and, and happy to talk to you about these things. So thank you. That's well, we like to do our research and um, like to deep dive into people's careers so that we can really ask questions that even if we didn't have them growing up, that I'm sure other people did too. Right. Now, kind of going into today and what's going on today, kind of interested if you don't mind asking about this, um, you being a writer and everything yeah. with the current writer strike going on. Would you care yeah. to share your thoughts on that and how it affects the entertainment industry and what the strikes that have occurred in like the 80s and 07? Did you notice notice changes better for the writers after those? Wow. Where what do you guys, this is like a serious question. <laughs> this isn't just some 90s, this isn't just some 90s fan-based idea. What 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 you guys are you stealthily like? <laughs> Uh, doing larger topics or something, because I'm more than happy to, to answer, and I'm not at all disturbed by it, but I'm impressed that you have a, a, a background about this stuff. So we, I mean, we obviously dealt with seeing what was going on in 2007 with that writer's strike, and we we like to keep up to date with entertainment today, because that's part of our thing is talking to people about what they did in the 90s and then how it affects them today, what how it's transitioned them today. And with this writer strike just being so forefront and then being able to talk to you, we're like, we've got a, we've got a writer. We, we want to get um, an insight directly from somebody who this is truly affecting. We'd like to hear your Okay, but you, you, may, you may have to buckle your seatbelt. Okay. <laughs> oh, ready. We're ready. Okay, and really, I'll, I don't want to go on too long, because obviously this is front of mind, and it's very important. And I'm not your 
I mean, nobody is the same in the Writers Guild, but I'm a bit more outside than 99% of them, mainly because my career has always been about creating shows. Like, I never worked for anybody. I never worked for another writer and then moved up the ladder and became a writer that created his own show. I only created my own thing. And that's unusual, idiosyncratic. It means that I'm more focused on the ability to create a new show than I am a, than I am on getting work. Although, I'll tell you, I never get hired <laughs> by anybody. And the only times I've been hired, I've been fired, you know, like at SNL and other places. So it's my personality and karma to be a guy that creates original stuff. And that is very much, there's an aspect to this strike that's very much at play with that. But I would say that most of the strike is about, or should be about, the average writer, whatever that average is, but somebody who gets a job and keeps working and has a chance to get a pension and to get health insurance, all of which I've been very fortunate to get in the Writers Guild, and which, you know, is seems like almost vanishing on the American landscape. Uh, and by the way, internationally, they don't have pensions and insurance, but they also have like in Portugal, they have national health insurance so and national pensions. So the United States is dependent. If you work in the United States, if you want health insurance and a pension, it comes from your work, not from everybody having it. So it becomes important. It's not just nothing, right? So I think most writers in the Writers Guild, the strike is about them being able to get a, get a job, have a chance to move up, not be made to write things over and over again that they don't need to and, and opportunities and things like that. We know there's a bunch of people at the very top who grew up in the system and they're invested in, you know, the larger picture about showrunners and how they, you know, so that's the landscape anyway to me, right? And they create IP, everybody creates some IP, meaning new ideas, and there's a fair amount at stake. Okay, so that's the that's what I think is the real kind of scenario we're in. But I think that we're in the we're on the verge of a creative apocalypse, I have to say, because I think the pressures are extremely dangerous right now. And I think the guild has to do what it's doing. But I think I'm not sure it's going to be able to change the dynamics of what's really going on. OK, so if you you'll forgive me, I'm going to go a little deeper. OK, to me. The reason why I say it's a creative apocalypse, it's really about, can we create new ideas? Can we do new shows? Because from a viewer's perspective, I mean, aside from everybody being able to make a living that they should do, right? You know what I'm saying? But from a viewer's perspective, and even from an artist's creative perspective, where are new shows going to come from? Where are new ideas going to come from? Are they going to be, is it possible to do that? Is it possible to see it made? possible to, to make a living and create more jobs from those new things, right? And I think that is what's at stake here. And it's at stake both from the streaming side of how they've structured streaming, and it gets a little technical, so forgive me and don't hesitate, I'll explain if I can. And not everybody, I don't even know who agrees with me or something, this is just my take on the situation. 
And like I say, it's a little more outside. So being a creative person is under attack from the streaming corporate world and AI, okay? And AI mm -hmm. is a bit of a mushy kind of, why is it really whatever? But AI in the hands of corporate and non-creatives is obviously concerning to creative people. Now, AI in the hands as a tool of creative people who are creating things, that might be very good, right? Is another tool, just like so many other tools. We're in this situation where, and this, this, this is the most succinct economic explanation of it from my perspective. It used to be that the show that you watch had value. So Bear or Clarissa or, you know, Homeland or one of those series you've seen that only went six episodes and never came back. Those shows in and of themselves made money. They were an economic engine. So Seinfeld was on NBC, but, but Seinfeld made money and all the people who worked on it made money, right? And so you made the episode of Seinfeld. Eventually they sold it internationally. Eventually they syndicated it. They might've sold, you know, towels or something from it or records or appearances. And there was a money generated thing from that. And all the people who worked on it got to participate in that. And actors got residuals and some got royalty and things like that. Now the show itself, they've taken all of the money profitability out of the show. The shows, once they're on, they go internationally everywhere. They don't necessarily need, you know, more episodes. They don't sell things from them. Nothing else. There's no profit center. The show is like an advertisement for a streamer. A show is like lost leader. It's like, oh, we spent all that money, $10 million on an episode of Shrinking. And it's outrageous the amount of money they're spending. And they're spending it because just like commercials, you know, little commercials, 30 second commercials can cost a fortune, right? Well, they're spending all that money because nobody's going to make any money afterwards. And they're getting maybe a higher salary, but they're going to lose any chance for future income from it, right? And the show basically is an advertisement for the streamer. And so now they can say, well, there's no money in the show. When, when somebody says, well, we should get better salaries or we should have a participation. What are you going to participate in? Because we're not going to give you a piece of the network of the streamer. You see what I'm saying? We're only, it's like if you did a, um, what's a, what's a, a, like a Rice Krispies ad on NBC. Should you get a piece of NBC because you did a Rice Krispies ad that went, you know, on and over and over again? So they can honestly say there's no money in the show. They can honestly say it's, you know, it's a streamer. And then you have an even bigger problem, which is the streamer is not a proven business. I mean, this is on the border of insanity that a business, nobody has proven that streamers are profitable. I know Warner Brothers just posted like for HBO, a, a tiny profit, okay? But it's not clear because they're always expanding and they're always adding more. And where it really creates value is for the executive class and the stock, right? That's where the, so they've taken, so let's just say there's profit. That profit though has shifted out of the shows away from the creative community and the creative people into these other forms. 
that are unreachable and unaccountable. Do you, do you get this scenario? Mm -hmm. I'm just, yeah. Yeah. That could go to another situation. So that's, I think, where we're dealing with. Now, can the strike do anything about that? I don't know. I mean, I don't see how they can not strike. I mean, I think they have to. And it's like, it's reflected in every labor movement across the world right now. I mean, every labor class is going, wait a second. The weapon of the spreadsheet has made all of us a service industry. That's part of what's going on is it's, it's taken creating a show into just being a service industry as opposed to, you know, making something new that you share in the value of. And it has a bad effect for audiences because there'll be less new stuff. Obviously, it has a terrible effect for creative people. And then this, the incoming AI issue is pretty big and subtle and hard to distinguish. And I'm not going to try to explain it all, but I'll give you an example. There's a, I saw a poster here in Portugal for... It looks like Jedi babies. It's some show on Disney. Yeah, that you I saw could, that. You could have predicted. If you were George Lucas, I'm sure you would have not been happy. <laughs> and they were, it, was, it would have been a comedy routine I would have written at mm -hmm. Saturday Night Live. Oh, we're going to do Jedi babies now. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like Stranger Things babies. You know, it's <laughs> like, go do the most hackneyed thing you can do, you know, that has nothing to do with the original franchise. And there you'll see, you know, in the poster for it, a purple and a black and a and a green kid. And, and you know, it's this sort of, and, and I could tell you, having written for so many things, that there are maybe 20 plots, storylines they can do for a show for little kids like that. Because it was done for Pound Babies. It was done for whatever, Beanie Babies or whatever other Muppet Babies. I mean, there's yeah. only so many... And these are young writers coming in to work on this, and they're going to be, you know, led by the network to do the standard kind of stuff. You don't think AI can write those episodes? Of course it can. It could, because basically AI is just a regurgitation of everything that's been done, and it puts it in all the forms that we know. And that's what a young writer is learning to do and doing and gets a job and paid for. And is it going to be that much different than what? A writer versus AI is going to do, you know, I'm telling you, it's questionable because there's only so many episodes you can do within the parameters of that form, but we're not getting anything original. We're not getting, you know, and, and, and I've been at Disney when in some of these rework working of the business where they go, oh, no, we're only going to do our IP. We're only going to do what we already have, meaning Star Wars babies, you know, we're only going to, we're not going to do that original show that might be great for kids. That's groundbreaking. You know, we're not going to do it because we're in the business of the corporate good. Right. And, you know, the reason why Clarissa and bear and shows like I did, and I even had a career was a long, long, long time ago in the nineties, there was a woman named Peggy Charon and Peggy Charon was this woman who went to Congress to demand educational programming and that Saturday morning cartoons couldn't just sell toys. They, you weren't even allowed to do a show that sold a toy for a while. And it forced everybody to do something original and new. I wouldn't have had a career if that hadn't happened. Well, now we're right back to where we're selling the same old thing again. So these are big issues 
that are more than just wages and insurance and everything, but it's the very act of creativity and creating IP. Sorry to be so apocalyptic, but, you know, and so many avenues, even with the, oh, there are no gatekeepers. You can do anything you want on YouTube. You can write any song you want. We know the reality of that has a lot of mirages and, and false equivalences. So these are big issues. And I even think they've used, and this might be the most controversial part of what I'm saying, because I completely endorse in all my shows. And in fact, when you see some of these shows that are being of mine that hopefully will get, you know, will appear again in a new form, <laughs> you'll see that I am as pro diversity and inclusion as you can be. And I mean, behind the camera, on the camera, in the story, everywhere. And it was always a regret of mine that Clarissa was so white, you know, that there wasn't, an Italian was considered, you know, diversity in those days, right? But there is a huge demand to make sure there's diversity and inclusion and it's right and it's good. But they're not giving those writers the kind of back end and ongoing participation that they used to give. So while they're holding high this important thing to do of diversity and inclusion, which, like I say, I couldn't say it enough, I'm for, they're also using it to cut out participation from all the creatives, including these young new people. People are not getting pensions and or not even a Writers Guild show, you know, in many cases. So there's a real, and it's not, I'm not saying everything is a maniacal plan by a bunch of people, but there's enough people looking at spreadsheets saying, well, we don't really need to do this and we don't really need to do that. And Wall Street is rewarding cutting. Wall Street is rewarding them cutting back while all this is going on. So it creates, you know, just a very difficult world and way worse than it was for me and way harder an opportunity to create something new and to do something that you can profit from, but also that audiences get something new. It becomes just a manufacturing business that we're all serving rather than a creative business. So there you go. That's my you asked the heavy question. Okay. <laughs> I want, we wanted the heavy answer, honestly. So kind yeah. of going off of that, do you think that's what there's been such a resurgence of reboots um, because they're wanting to pull back from their already library of things like Disney, Nickelodeon, um, like we talked about with the Clarissa reboot. I mean, there's so many shows going back and rebooting those and that's do you think that that's because of the the corporations just wanting to stick with their ips yeah isn't it funny in a way the 90s the 90s generation is getting played you know what i'm saying yeah. mm -hmm. i mean the short answer is yes i mean because like if you go to any of these companies and say i have this new idea and i have tons of new ideas and i have tons of shows i'm trying to do here and i pitched i have a whole slate of stuff but it's not a coincidence which ones are going forward. And, and I'm fortunate because, well, hopefully going forward, it's not a guarantee at all, but it's, it's unfortunate because I did create some things from back then. Now, there's always been some of these dynamics. It's not a clean 
like I say, a diabolical plot that's done this, then the other thing. But there are elements of intent. And yes, you're you're more likely to reboot in many cases. And they're not hugely successful. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's be honest about that. I mean, I think my ideas for redoing shows are really good. And I think they'll work. But in many cases, they're not uh, regenerative. You know, they're not reimagining. They're not... They're kind of formula. I mean, I look to something like, actually sounds funny, but the Spider-Man animation movie, Spider-Verse movie, as the first thing that I saw that was rebooted with real heart and imagination that surprised me, you know, and took me someplace new. Um, So it's possible to do those things, but it's not always fun. It's not that creative sometimes you know even for someone like me i mean and and i'm all for legacy i I don't even think legacy is so great you know i think people ought to move on um but yes i mean it's like these companies own ip they own it and as time goes on fewer and fewer people participate in that ip and as these things change um, they own it entirely. So when they produce it from a business perspective, they're getting much more out of it than anybody else. But it's reached a level that is going to, uh, I mean, I'm not predicting anything bad will happen to them because probably, you know, they're very uh, de- well defended, but it's going to mean that people aren't going to get new things. That's why I say it it creates a creative apocalypse for the for the creator and writer and the people who work in these businesses and for the audience. I think they are entirely linked. I don't think it's just the writers are complaining they're not getting enough money and all those kind of comparisons to how much a writer gets versus a plumber or whatever and people, you know, trying to defend themselves. All those, I don't think those are the issues. I think the issues are much there's much more at stake. And I mean, I'm not saying those aren't important issues. I'm saying people ought to get away. There ought to be a way to write. My son, you know, will he make, be able to make money and will he be able to get a pension and do these things? It's just not fair. So anyway, but I think it's also for the audience. It's a question. Well, I think to wrap up with one final question so we don't keep you too much <laughs> longer. Like the room is closed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go home now. Yeah. <laughs> Um, can you just tell us a little bit about Bear in the Big Blue House and where that idea came from and kind of the sure. that whole thing? Sure. It's a little bit like Clarissa in the sense, I mean, I do have a I do have creative ideas, but I do start with what, how can I identify with the audience? How can I find that thing that the audience is going to feel like is signature, you know, is me? And at the time, you know, there was Barney famously it's very successful. And there were some nice things about Barney, but people, a lot of people felt it was kind of infantilized. And I uh, was, had made my deal with Henson when I didn't do that animation thing. I ended up making a deal with Henson and, and there are a lot of wonderful people there. And I said, you need your own Barney. You need, Henson should have done the Barney of, everyone thought it was a little bit crazy. And I wanted to do a walk around because remember, Barney was not very expressive, still isn't. It was, like I say, you know, my joke about Bear is that if you were in a fight, would you want Big Bird, Barney, Elmo, or Bear on your side? 
and you want bear bears are mm-hmm. protective of children yeah barney's other guys are infantilized characters you know what i mean they're little little characters and that's what they felt yeah. they needed to do right bears a protector of little kids and he's going to be there for you he still is good for you and all this stuff like mr rogers you know in that way as well so i looked at the scenario you know what was there and and i was determined to figure out how to make a puppet that was expressive but still could walk around and a genius designer paul andreco who used to be at henson designed it and he figured out how to do it using some technology that had been done on big bird and other things but really had figured it out to the point where it was highly a funny thing about bear is that if you see him from the side he's kind of got a little head on a big body because the way it works is it's this big body with a hand in the head and that hand is oh sniffing you right sniff 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 sniff, <laughs> sniff sniff so when you see this big hand this head on the body it's foreshortened so it looks like it's normal size he doesn't look like just a hand up there it was just brilliantly designed for tv and and then of course noel mcneil is the consummate body puppeteer that I don't think anybody could do better than he did ever. And he took it beyond anything. And he was like Melissa. I mean, he's my Melissa on Bear. He is in every scene. He has every line. He dances without being able to see where he is sometimes. I mean, it's extraordinary, right? So the next part of the idea, the creative side of it was that I was fascinated when I did Clarissa that we practically built a house inside a studio. And I had this thought, well, God, wouldn't it be great to do a show that was in a house where kids could be in this house and explore house, which is a very Nickelodeon idea at the time. And and my original idea was called just the big, the big house, you know, which sounded like a prison. So I dropped that idea. But anyway, so, and then my, so one is I wanted the house. I wanted to be able to explore a house and have characters in a house. And the second big idea was that little kids see adults I, I i had three kids by that time and our yeah i did have three kids and i always thought little kids see adults as these big lumbering bears right and so from the point of view of a little kid you know we're these big things and and there's almost like a civil rights idea i had about being a little thing and being protected by a big thing so that's tutter and bear right like the first episode was water, that Tutter wanted water. And in a house, there's no way to get water if you're really little, unless the big guys help you get the water. And it's like, your right is to get water. So can't, you know why? So to see it that way and to see the whole idea of the show that way. And so that's where it was inspired from both the house and the house is like, when you think about a house and there's a lot of very intellectual books about this, it's the complete collection of Western and Eastern civilization of, of our knowledge about how we live. So there's a fireplace. What is that? The history of the fireplace, you know, the history of a, how water gets into the house. So there's just this education everywhere in a house and growing up and it goes on and on and on. Obviously I go on, but, but uh, that's where all of it came from, you know, was wanting to do a more sophisticated walk around character that could be really more could reach you. And I have to say, I put all of myself in there. I mean, every 
kind of thing I better than I am. I think I did better than I am in Bear. Bear's a better man than I am. <laughs> and so I was able to put my, you know, the most I could do into that show. And I I just cherish that show. Aww, I love to hear that. Yeah, it was, and that. it was a great show. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I did, like I said earlier, I did really enjoy that show. And just, it made you feel good inside watching it. Yeah. Uh, it was even being a little on the older side and everything i i didn't care that it was geared towards a younger crowd i i enjoyed it i mm-hmm. i really truly did that that's one of what i think a hallmark of a great show is when it really touches you and yeah. makes you feel good yeah bear is really one of the things i was trying to do even though it's for little kids it really is you know muppet show you can call it Muppets, but it really is a show for adults and kids. And, you know, sometimes it balances one way or the other. And it could be, I do feel like that group of characters has such resonance beyond preschool, you know, that they're a family. They just have a lot of ability to do comedy, just flat out funny. Yeah. There's nobody better than Tutter. I mean, Tutter is as funny as it gets, you know? Yes. So, yeah, I I think it's, it was always designed in my mind for being another set of characters for Henson to, and Disney to uh, develop, you know, to do more. Now, do you think there's ever a chance of a reboot of Bear? Well, you know, it's on Disney Plus now, mm-hmm. which it wasn't anywhere for 10 years or more. It was just not understandable why. And then miracles do happen. And suddenly it's only been about six or eight months it's been on disney plus and doing really well and people are seeing it i wish they would organize it slightly differently by theme and not by episode number because the episode numbers don't mean anything you know it's not like episodes of secession or something like that so i think there's a lot that can be done with it and i think there you know obviously with the strike any project that has writers in it right now is you know, isn't going to go anywhere right away. But there's definitely, you know, I I think there's support at Henson. I think there's support at Disney. There were so many wonderful people that worked on that show that all would love to start again. And we, you know, you know, of course, probably that special needs kids are deeply attached to Bear. Also to my show, Big, Big World, but deeply, deeply attached to Bear. And uh, I mean, I have so many friends that are autistic or uh, have cerebral palsy or whatever, you know, who are are really I'm involved with because of their love of that show. So I think there's a real reason to do it again. I think it still resonates and hopefully we'll bring more to it than just a rehash. You know, we'll do something really new and extraordinary with it. Just kind of touching on that real quick. How does it make you feel? like when they would do all of the Disney tours and Bear was one of the main things that they were pushing, like everybody was wanting to see Bear. How did that make you feel? Oh, it was just exquisite. I mean, you know, I there was a point where we did, FAO Schwartz used to be have that big store in New York of toys. And, and we opened up that store with Bear... And my kids in the carriage doing a 
a carriage around Central Park and then coming into that store, you know, and and at the Disney MGM, you know, he increased the attendance in the park. And uh, people remember that opening I mean that that um, the stage show so fondly, you know, and all of his appearances on TV. I mean, Noel, you know, he didn't do everything down in the park, but he did the stuff on TV and he obviously had a lot to do with inventing the way they talk to each other and stuff like that. And so, you know, I, for me, Bear and Clarissa are like when I meet people and they go, oh, my God, you made my childhood, you know, or they say, oh, that meant so much to me. And I'm here in Portugal and you wouldn't you'd be shocked how often it happens almost equally here as it did over there. And it even happens with younger people who couldn't have been watching it, you know, at the time. So it's a real lift. It's a real gift you know, to have done things that do that. It's it's just incredible. Well, that, that, that's extraordinary. And I, yeah, I'm, I loved hearing about all of this and you coming on and talking to us about all of this. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And thank you for being like, you're like the heaviest lifters in this uh, category <laughs> I've ever talked to. And in terms of, uh, I'm sure you have even more questions and thoughts about everything. But yeah, no, really perceptive. I hope I was able to answer the the guild thing appropriately. And but thank you for all those great questions. I loved them. Well, thank you so much, Mitchell, for joining us and especially time difference and everything, working with us to get set up. You you've broadened my personal experience and made it even more encumbersome and humble. And I love it. And now I have a I have a need to even re-rewatch all of these <laughs> and get do that and we definitely are going to keep up with yeah what you've got going on we're yeah. excited for all of that and definitely gonna be watching for that audrey okay. hepburn one yes. to, yeah, yeah. To, to make waves and thank you so much again mitchell for coming and joining us it has oh, been a welcome. blessing oh thank you so much 